Amen. You know, often uh, our technical teams and our musicians and singers and worship leaders can feel as if, well, they never say, they've never said this to me, but we can take them for granted if we're not careful. Let's show our appreciation to all these guys that minister. Week in and week out. Never, never ever think that the only person that um, is busy on a Sunday morning is the preacher. There are children's workers, there are cleaners, there are welcomers, there are stewards, there are um, techie people, musicians, singers, so many folk. And I am so grateful to you all. Good morning. Uh, good morning online if you're joining us. Uh, thank you for taking the time to be with us. If you're on holiday somewhere and you're joining online and you're part of our church family, have a great holiday, but it's probably warmer here than it is there. And if you're here on holiday or on vacation, you are very welcome. Uh, somebody said to me coming in, there are a couple here from um, the United States, and they're called Donald and... Uh, yes, I knew that. They told me that. But I said, and Melania? It would it be Donald and Melania? And are they from Washington State? Definitely not. Well, you're very welcome. It's, it's really good to have you. My name is Malcolm Duncan. I lead the church here, and it is an honor to do that. And it's great to see Johnny. Are you here on your own, Johnny? Johnny and Holly, and is Tilly here? We have to congratulate them on the birth of their little girl. Can I just, are there bags under those eyes? <laughs> yes, matchsticks are very helpful. Uh, congratulations on the birth of your little girl. Uh, please turn in your Bibles, if you can, please, with me to uh, 1 John chapter 2. If you are not familiar with where that is, I would suggest the best thing to do is to go to the very back of the Bible and work your way forward. It's easier to find 1 John from the back of the Bible than it is from the front. I'd like to read to you uh, from verse 28 of 1 John chapter 2 through to verse 10 of 1 John chapter 3. If you haven't got a Bible, I'm sure somebody near you will um, let you share theirs. There's a little bit of dispute about who wrote this book, but I think it was probably John that wrote the gospel. Some people think that it might have been some of his disciples years later. I'm not convinced of that argument. I think it was John himself. And he was probably writing to the church in Ephesus, where he had uh, gone to live and he died there as an old man, the only one that uh, of the apostles that died a natural death. Legend has it that John would be carried in on a stretcher or a sofa to Ephesus, and they would say, tell us the stories of Jesus. Tell us again of who he was and how he touched your life. And that makes sense when you read the beginning of his letter, that which we have handled, that which we have seen, that which we have touched. We proclaim to you concerning the word of life. He's writing to a group of people that are being caught up in lots of odd ideas. One of them is called Gnosticism. It's the idea that there are some Christians that have secret knowledge and they're more spiritual. They're the ones that are holier than everybody else. In its worst form, some extreme versions of the charismatic and the Pentecostal church of which we are part can end up sounding like that if we're not careful. That there are secret bits of knowledge that only some special Christians have access to. John is determined to stamp that out. He's also writing to a group of people who are facing persecution, and there are lots of false prophets arising around them, and he wants them to remain true to who Jesus Christ is. So it's in that context that we turn to 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. 
And now, little children, abide in him, that's Jesus, so that when he is revealed, we may have confidence and not be put to shame before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who does right has been born of him. See what love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know him is that it did not... The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet been revealed. What we do know is this. When he is revealed, we will be like him. For we will see him as he is. And all who have this hope in him purify themselves, just as he is pure. Everyone who commits sin is guilty of lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he was revealed to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has either seen him or known him. That's a really good moment. Little children is the next word. As you heard those children laughing outside. Little children, let no one deceive you. Everyone who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. Everyone who commits sin is a child of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The Son of, the son of God was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. Those who have been born of God do not sin, because God's seed abides in them. They cannot sin because they have been born of God. The children of God and the children of the devil are revealed in this way. All who do not do what is right are not from God. Nor are those who do not love their brothers and sisters. Amen. God always blesses the public reading of his inspired and his infallible word. Over the last seven Sunday mornings, we have been going through a series which I have really enjoyed, entitled Kingdom People. We've looked at putting God's kingdom first as our great principle, loving God as our great passion, worshiping honestly as our great priority, following Jesus as our great pursuit, making disciples as our great purpose, remembering that he is always with us as our great promise. And this morning we come to the last of that series, our great privilege that we will see him. We've looked at Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, that, entitles, that encourages us to seek God's kingdom first and his righteousness. And Matthew chapter 22, verse 37, that says, Love God with all your heart, mind, and soul as your neighbor as yourself, and your neighbor as yourself. Then we spent four weeks looking at the Great Commission at the end of Matthew's gospel, chapter 28, verses 16 to 20. And this morning I want to kind of set a capstone on this series, which I think is really important for our church family moving forward. That we go back to this kingdom people teaching and listen to it again and again and again in the years that lie ahead. By reminding you of the great privilege of a Christian's life. And that is that we will see God. That we will see him and be seen by him. We will know him and be known by him. There is no greater privilege in life than to have this assurance. These words 
are dripping with hope and life and grace and mercy and purpose and challenge. Several years ago, I had to teach a large, large community, one John, as a a Bible study across six mornings. I think it's one of the hardest books to teach in the Bible. Because in it, you see something which is different to the way we think here in uh, the Western world or the Northern Hemisphere, depending on uh, where you, what the scripture you like to use. You see, when we set out arguments, we use a Greek form of reasoning normally. And that Greek form of reasoning is that you start here and you make an argument that progresses to a conclusion here. And people listen to it and they understand it. Okay, that's the beginning of the argument. This is the end of the argument. And that's how you make your way through it. That's how the Apostle Paul writes He writes like that. You can understand his arguments. Well, you sometimes can understand his arguments because he's linear. John writes like a Jewish or a Hebrew philosopher. Now, the best way that I can explain how that works is imagine um, if you ever, I don't know if you've ever been to it, but there's, there's a museum in New York called the Guggenheim Museum. The thing that's unique about it is that it has a spiral staircase that goes around the very middle of the building, all the way up. Really, really big building. The Harrogate International Center, not quite so glamorous, has the same principle. If you can think in your head of a building that has a big spiral staircase, I don't know, what, would, one of, would anybody be able to help me with one in Northern Ireland that has that? That'll be a no then. <laughs> a big spiral staircase. Imagine it going round and round and round and round and round. And down through the middle of it, imagine for a moment that there is a hanging, the most beautiful chandelier. And you're trying to describe it. How would you describe it? You'd walk around it, wouldn't you? And you'd see the same thing from different angles again and again and again as you walk to the top of the staircase. And you keep talking about it. So you'd say, first time round, it, like, um, it looked like a crystal shining in the morning sun. Second time round, it looked like it had a, a flash of emerald on it because of the way the light hit it. The third, whoops, the third time round, it looked like a blue sapphire because it was so beautiful. It was just stunning. That's how 1 John is written. And the things that hang in the chandelier in the middle of it are things like um, truth and sin and love and faithfulness and joy and trust. And he walks round and round that chandelier and every time you look at it, you can see the same thing, but you see it differently. And his arguments are circular, not linear. So you jump all over the place. It's almost impossible to understand 1 John without reading the whole thing. That's why in this section, and I don't have time to comment on it more fully, there's this repeatedly strong challenge about sin. He wants Christians, followers of Jesus in Ephesus, to understand that you can't say you believe something and not live it out. Most people in the West, most people educated in context like many of us would be used to, not all by any uh, stretch of the imagination, would think that if you say something, you believe it. That's not what John teaches. John says if you live something, you believe it. 
So you can say the creed to me. If you don't live it, you don't believe it. You can say I'm a member of Dundonald Elam because I signed a statement of faith. If you signed it but you don't live it, then it's not the same thing. And that is a real challenge to many evangelicals. Because we think if we say something, we believe it. For John, if you live it, you believe it. Now we all fall, we all make mistakes, he makes that point. But if we live something out, then we believe it. And John goes on to say, if you're a community, you will love one another. You can't be a community just by saying it again and again and again. If you're a community, you love your brothers and your sisters. You forgive your brothers and your sisters. You welcome your brothers and your sisters. You find room for your brothers and your sisters. You can't say you're a community unless you're living it. So important. But what I want to focus in on this morning is this remarkable promise that is like a teardrop diamond set in a platinum setting on an engagement ring. Brothers and sisters, behold, we are children of God. And that is what we are. And when we see him, we will be like him. The light's bouncing off the diamond in every direction. You have to look at it again and again and again and again and again to understand it. It brings hope and joy and purpose and meaning to the darkest days of our lives. I'm going to give you an illustration that I'm going to come back to a couple of times. Our son, Benjamin, got married on the 21st of December 2017, last year. Pastor is his father, busiest week of the year, and he got married on the 21st of December. Now, there were lots of very good reasons for that that I'll explain to you perhaps over the next 200 years as we journey together. But for a year before it, we had quite a lot of conversations about this wedding. My daughter, our daughter, Debbie had something to do with it, got engaged <laughs> about 10 or 14 days ago. And we've already started looking at wedding venues and working out costs. I need something to hold on to. <laughs> she's already started to think about what she's going to wear and who's going to be her bridesmaids and everything else. She's got a provisional date in her head. So for a year, 18 months after Benjamin got engaged, all the way through until the day he got engaged on the 21st of December, we were formed and shaped and um, drawn by this promised reality. We didn't get up on the morning of the wedding and say, well, let's throw something on. We didn't think, we'll make a couple of sandwiches, and if we run out, we can get them from Marks and Spencers and shove them on tables. We didn't walk past the church and say, anybody free to come to a wedding? We were as organized as we could be, we were planning, we were investing, we were saving, we were thinking, we were making sure every detail was right. Not out of fear, not out of anxiety, not out of pressure only, but out of a sense of anticipation of this event happening. Tomorrow, our, um, our third child, our oldest daughter, graduates from Queens. We're going 
On the same day as our stuff arrives from England in an articulated lorry, we're going. She went yesterday and she picked up her gown. I haven't seen her in it yet. I'll probably cry when I see her in it. She's ready for the graduation. There's this joyful, wonderful event that is going to take place in our family tomorrow and then another one next year. And we're planning for it. It's reaching back from the future into the present and it's changing the way we think. It's changing the priorities that we set. It's changing how we spend our money. Not quite so many Davy Lee Chinese takeaways for the next year. I've never heard a Chinese man with a stronger Belfast accent, but that's another story. I'm still trying to get it right in my head. But it's changing our priorities. Something that we know is down the road is changing the way we live today. That's the way the Bible teaches the moment you will see Jesus Christ. Not just fear, although holy fear should be part of our reasoning. Not just reverence. Not just respect. Not even just longing. And oh, how we long to see him. But a reality that reaches from the future into our present and takes hold of our souls and makes us holier. Because we are saying yes to something that lies ahead of us, which is earth-shatteringly changing. That will change every atom of the universe. That will transform every aspect of our character. That will inveigle its way into the deepest, darkest recesses of our hearts. And the privilege is that because we know it, we live in anticipation of it. And everything in us points itself toward that moment. And it begins to shape our imagination and shape our thinking. When you read John's words about Jesus' moment of reunion between us and Jesus, and I will be looking tonight at the second coming. I can't wait for both the second coming and tonight's sermon. Although I hope the sermon comes before the... I will be looking at that more fully this evening. What I want to focus on this morning to encourage you is the sense of privilege and the sense of possibility that is drawn out of us when we realize that we will see Jesus Christ. And I've only got four points that I want to make to you. The first one is understand the privilege of your new position. 1 John 3, 1. See what love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. There is no greater privilege in my life. There, is no, there are no words in English or any other language that can explain the utter, utter privilege of being brought into God's family. When you become a Christian, whether as a youngster or as an older person, you are adopted, you are accepted you are never acquitted. He never says, you're not guilty. He says, you're pardoned. There's a difference. The guilt that you deserve is lifted from you and placed on the only person who wasn't guilty, Jesus Christ. And the freedom that only he deserved is lifted from him 
and placed on us the guilty ones. I'm not acquitted. I'm pardoned. God has looked at my sin and has paid the price for it and has forgiven me. And he gives me freedom to live free from guilt, free from fear, free from threat, free from judgment, free from all of those things. But not because I don't deserve it, because he loves me. Because I have accepted his son. Because in accepting his son, I enter into a whole new reality of relationship. If you are a Christian here, you have been adopted and accepted and pardoned. Let him go free. Listen to Romans chapter 8 verses 12 to 17. Paul talking to the church in Rome. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received a spirit of adoption. When we cry, Abba, Father, It's the very spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If in fact we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Allow that to sink in. Too many Christians think that they are saved by grace and then they have to live according to law. They have to prove that God made a right decision. They somehow come into the kingdom by grace and then they think, if I don't prove that I was worth it, I'll lose it. He loves you. He has forgiven you. When you've come to him through Christ, every sin, past, present, and future, every sin is washed away. Every barrier is removed. Every obstacle is broken down. You are his And he is yours, and his banner over you is love. I think what John is trying to say here, which I think is so important for us in Northern Ireland, particularly because of perhaps our personalities, is that this is not just something that we can understand with our heads. We must also enter into it with our hearts. There is an experience of the love of God for us to have. Not just to be able to recite it, but to know it. To look into the mirror in the morning and realize no matter what happens, I am redeemed because of God's love and grace. I am changed by him. As I've been trying to work out how to articulate this to you this week, I have found myself again and again returning to songs and to poems. Because I think what John does here is try to get us to understand that this is something, the journey from our heads to our hearts for truth is the, is, the, is the shortest journey imaginable and it can take the longest time. To not just be able to say something, but to know in the depth of our knowing that it is true. There are so many songs that I thought about this week that I thought could help me articulate this to you. Some new and some old. And I think that's because when you realize that you've been brought into the kingdom, when you discover, when you understand this, It's something that you will sing about for the rest of your life. Charles Wesley's hymn that we sung just a few weeks ago, 
And can it be that I should gain an interest in the bleeding lamb? My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. It's perhaps the best known of all of the 6,000 hymns that Charles Wesley wrote. It led to the writing of the amazing song, Amazing Love, You Are My King, which hit number one in the American Billboard charts in 2003. It was written in 1738, the year of Wesley's conversion, which he regarded as having taken place on 21st of May that year. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Or that song that we have sung a lot since I've come here, beautiful song, number one in the charts, in the Christian charts at this very moment, I am who you say I am. It's a song that speaks of our position in Christ and who we are, written by Ben Fielding and Reuben Morgan. A song that we may sing at the end of the gathering, it depends on where we are this morning. I cannot tell why he whom angels worship would set his love upon the sons of men to the tune of the London Derriere, written by a Belfast man, Bill Fullerton, in uh, the halfway through the 19th century, under the influence of Charles Spurgeon. All of these capture something about this reality of who we are now. But here's the one that speaks to me beyond all of them. You may or may not know it. I just want to read the lyrics to you, written by Bryn and Sally Hayworth in 2003. What kind of love is this that gave itself for me? I am the guilty one, yet I go free. What kind of love is this? A love I've never known. I didn't even know his name. What kind of love is this? What kind of man is this? that died in agony. He who had done no wrong was crucified for me. What kind of man is this who laid aside his throne that I may know the love of God? What kind of man is this? Then you'd expect it to say, what kind of God is this? But that's not how the song finishes. What kind of grace By grace I have been saved. It is the gift of God. He destined me to be his own. Such is his love. No eye has ever seen, nor ear has ever heard, nor has the human heart conceived. What kind of love is this? That's the sentiment that John has when he says, Brothers and sisters, remember the kind of love that has redeemed you. Oh, I've been a Christian 30 years, Malcolm. It's all got a bit twee. Then ask God to break through that this morning. The night I was inducted here, we sang a song together, which if the Lord should take me home, I will have sung at my funeral. May I never lose the wonder of the cross. May I see it like the first time, standing as a sinner lost, undone by mercy, and left speechless at the cost. Never lose the wonder of the cross. 
This love that has reached out to us. This love that has transformed us. This love that has changed us. Has changed millions of people across history. Millions of people across time. And is still changing us. It's still at work in us. It's still changing Malcolm Duncan. Samuel Trevor Francis was a rebellious teenager. He didn't do as his parents said. He wanted to live his own way. He made and lost his parents' fortune. He spent one night, he was standing on the River Thames, above the River Thames, on a bridge, ready to throw himself in. And as he stood, about to throw himself in, he heard this verse in his head and in his heart. And he surrendered his life back to Jesus Christ. And he began to live for him. He became a merchant and in London. He was born in 1834 and he died in 1925. And as he reflected on this verse for the rest of his life, he wrote many poems and songs. But the one that you will know is this. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me, underneath me, all around me is the current of thy love, leading onward, leading homeward to thy glorious rest above. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, spread his praise from shore to shore, how he loveth, ever liveth, changeth, changeth never, never more, how he watches o'er his loved ones, died to call them all his own, now for them he intercedeth, watcheth, watched o'er them, watching o'er them from the throne. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, love of every love the best. Tis an ocean vast with blessing, tis a haven sweet of rest. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, tis a heaven of heavens to me, and it lifts me up to glory, for it lifts me up to him. That's the love that God has poured into our hearts. And that is what we are now, given to us by the Father. Behold, brothers and sisters, now we are the children of God. See what love the Father has given us. You didn't buy it. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. He gave it to us. Like children who had no name being given a name. The story of Hosea, chapter 1, verse 4, where God calls one of his children, Jezreel, which means God sows. And then verse 6, he calls his little girl, not pitied. And he called his little boy, not my people. And then he redeems them and brings them into the family of God. And they are given a new name, loved, pitied. That's what's happened to us. It's what Paul picks up in Romans 9, verses 25 to 26. It's what Peter picks up in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous night. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. How can that be true? And yet it is true. Why would God do it for us? In his book on marriage, Tim Keller says this, To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. To be fully known and truly loved is what it means to be loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficult, th difficult things that life can throw at us. To know you're loved. 
You have nothing to prove. You have nothing to earn. And God will finish the job in you. Liberates you from having to live for somebody else. Having to prove yourself. That is your current position. That is the privilege that we are given. And it is true now. Not in six months. Not at the point of death. Not in 40 years. So many Christians live as if their salvation has been secured, but their sanctification is not. God will finish what he has started in you. Listen to John twice in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, when he describes us as children of God. This is what we are now. And then in verse 2, beloved, we are God's children now. Ephesians 2, verse 6 tells us that we used to be one thing, but now we are another. Romans 8, verse 1 says, Now there is no condemnation. Now! For those that are in Christ Jesus. Paul wants to say it again and again in chapter 2 of Ephesians, verse 1 and 4. He lists a whole range of things that they used to be. And then here's what he says in verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy has drawn us into his family. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. Paul, trying to get the people in Colossae to understand this, says this. He has transferred you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. When you are born again, you are immediately brought into the family of God. There's nothing you have to prove. And it changes our current position now. Paul says that we are seated with Christ in heavenly places now. So many of us live our lives as if we have to prove that God really wants us. But you are already, if you are a child of God, in a different position. You're already given the privileges of adoption. You're already loved. You're already accepted. You're already forgiven. But this promise also has a future power in it. Listen to 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet been revealed. What we do know is this, when, we, when he is revealed, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. We are going to be changed. Our lives are going to be transformed. Our physicality is going to be transformed. There's only one person in all of history that has experienced this so far. It's Jesus Christ. But one day, <laughs> Malcolm Duncan, this fella standing in front of you, will be morally without sin, intellectually without falsehood or error, Physically without weakness or imperfection. I will be the perfect version of me. And you will be the perfect version of you. When we see him, we will be like him. Not identical to you. Like I'm not going to be omnipotent. I'm not going to be all powerful. In other words, I'm not going to be all seeing. 
I'm not going to be all present. I'm not going to be all knowing. I'll never share those attributes with God. But I will be like him. This power, this promise is so strong. It brings so much life and hope to our hearts. I need to do a little bit of theology with you. A man called Augustine of Hippo, nothing to do with animals, more to do with uh, North Africa, wrote about this. And he wrote about it in four different ways. Now, this is going to sound confusing, but it really is very encouraging. Just bear with me, all right? He said that when we were created, we were created with two capacities. A posse non peccare and posse peccare. Now, they are not Italian fish dishes. That means posse non peccare. In our original state, we were able not to sin. Posse non peccare. And we were also able to sin. Posse peccare. After the fall, humanity entered into a different space and time. All of us impacted by sin. Where we become non posse non peccare. Not able not to sin. That's what John is talking about. When you become born again... You are once given, again, given the ability to choose not to sin in the power of the Holy Spirit. And you become, once again, like you were in creation. Posse non peccare, able not to sin. And posse peccare, able to sin. But on the day you see Jesus face to face, you become non posse peccare. You never thought you'd be so excited about so many Latin words in two minutes, did you? Do you know what that means? Not able to sin. Born with an ability to do your own thing. Am I the only person in this room or around the world on the internet that regularly says, why do I do the things I do? Why do I struggle? How many times have I asked God to break this habit in me and I keep returning to it? Does nobody else feel like that in this room? Do you all get up every morning and say, thank you, Lord, that I've never done a thing wrong in my life? I can tell some of you do. No, I'm only kidding. And we struggle with it. So did Paul in Romans 6 and 7. Here's what he said. The good that I would, I do not. The evil that I wouldn't do, I do. Who's going to save me from these terrible tensions? And then he says, I thank God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. There is a day coming. I, if I could tell you how excited I was, I would. When... The very presence of sin will be removed from my life. I will never sin again. I'll never open my mouth just to make room for the other foot. I'll never blunder in. I'll never make a mistake. I'll never make a wrong judgment. I'll never reach a conclusion too quickly. I'll never hurt somebody. I'll never do it again. And the moment that that happens in me, will be one of two moments. The day I die and I'm taken to be with Christ or the day Jesus Christ comes back to get me. That's the promise. We will be like him. Some of you are sitting in the midst of terrible choices and you feel stuck and the devil is whispering in your ear, you're useless. You're never going to change. Once, once a failure, always a failure. I'm not looking at you in particular. Once a failure, always a failure. 
Once a loser, always a loser. I once had a pastor say that to me. I'd made a mistake and I went to see him and he said, I will never forgive you. He said, a leopard never changes its spots. Well, I'll tell you, in the kingdom of God, lions and lambs are very, very odd things. I will be liberated from sin. I'll be liberated from its presence, from its power, and from its influence in my life. And so will you. Oh, for goodness sake. (laughs) Now we see through a glass darkly, Paul says. Then, face to face. Imagine staring into the face of Jesus Christ. I don't want that moment to be filled with regret. If getting ready for my son and daughter's weddings was exciting and had the power to reach back into my present and change me, then getting ready for the wedding feast of the Lamb has a positive influence in the choices I make today. It reaches back from whatever moment that will be in history and years or decades or centuries down the line and it reaches into my soul tonight, today, this morning as we approach this communion table and it says you can make a good choice. I hear people preaching on sin often. I hear pastors chastising and rebuking and belittling their congregations from pulpits again and again and again. The Bible doesn't do that in order to get us to live holy lives. The Bible holds out the picture of the life that we will live and then reaches back into our present and picks us up and says, okay, you failed again. Start again. Take another step because God hasn't finished with you yet. And he will finish the job that he has begun in you. Listen to the way Paul describes this in Romans chapter 8 and verses 29 and 30. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn within a large family. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. All in the past tense. So far, I thought I'd only been saved. What is Paul doing in Romans 8? Exactly what John is doing in 1 John chapter 3. He's saying this, at the cross and at the empty tomb, all the power you need to get this job done has been given to you by Jesus Christ. The same power that saved you will sanctify you. The same power that saved you will draw you into a holy life. The same power will see you glorified. And Paul was so certain that he could write it in the past tense. That's the promise that empowers us to live now and to live differently. Not that I have to prove myself worthy of God, but that God has planted a seed that nothing can stop in my soul. And that he is working his purposes out in me. And one day I will be like him. What a privilege. What an honor. What a delight. As we approach this table, could the servers come forward, please? Because I want to remind you of something. We should always approach God's table with reverence and worship. And we should always remember what he has done for us. 
The words that I use every week and others use when they introduce communion always go something like this. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he gave thanks. And he said, this bread is my body broken for you. In the same way, he took the cup and he drank from it and he said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Drink from it, all of you. And then here's the bit I want you to think about this morning. As often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you do remember the Lord's death until he comes. We can eat this bread and drink this cup with huge hope because he's at work in our lives. We can eat it thanking him that one day we will be without sin. We can eat it letting go of our sin at his feet because he's taken it. He's dealt with it all. And if you're not yet a Christian here, what a moment to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. To allow him to take all of your wrongdoing and absorb it, to carry it off you and take its punishment so that you might have life. All you have to do is ask him. Watching online or here in this room, simply say, Lord, take my sin, take my failure, take my brokenness, take my shame, take my weakness, take my mistakes, take all of me. And he will say, I accept you. Now you take my gift to you, eternal life, grace and mercy and forgiveness. I can't carry you into the kingdom, but you could make that decision today. As we are taking communion, why don't you say to Jesus, forgive me? And if you say it, take the communion. If you don't, then don't take it. And if you're not walking with Christ, but you are a believer, what better morning than to get things sorted out than now? And to say, I give you all of the stuff that's got in the way. I ask you to take it. Purify me with the hope of your grace at work in my life. If you do that, God will immediately restore you. If you choose not to be restored to relationship with God through Jesus Christ, then please don't eat the bread and don't drink the wine. Let them pass you by. Lord, come in your grace and in your mercy and meet with your people by the power of the Holy Spirit. As we eat bread and drink wine, let hope and joy and grace rise in our souls. By the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.